Episode 70, Growing Your Firm with Chatbot and Artificial Intelligence. My conversation with immigration lawyer, Jared Jescott. Jared is a Baltimore-based immigration lawyer and legal AI creator. His law firm, Jascott Law, focuses on humanitarian immigration law. He has written and spoken extensively on law firm management, marketing, and legal AI. He believes that the law can change to serve more people for less money. Jared Botts has spoken with over 150,000 immigrants about their cases. He is interested in learning how to make the law better by studying other industries like manufacturing. Enjoy. Have you been enjoying the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast? Consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast feeds. Jared, welcome to the podcast. So excited to be here. I appreciate you being here. And to get things started, please tell us what your current tech setup is. I've got a Sony ZV-1 running through Elgato capture card into a MacBook Pro with the M1 Max chip and big GPU. Got a Rode mic running that through a CAD Audio Connect 2 mixer and a fairly standard light. And... So I know you have a MacBook Pro, and I think you said the, the L1 Max. Now, it's the Max, the Pro, and then the Ultra, or do I have that backwards? I think that the M1 Max is the... Highest for a MacBook. Yeah. Okay, so I haven't memorized the list yet, and I have the same setup you have for my laptop, the Max, the M1 chip, but for my desktop, I have a studio M1 Ultra. Ooh, and, nice. And I've seen like a lot of the numbers that have been coming out for the M2, and I'm still pretty high up there with the Ultra. And then I think the M3s are coming out fairly soon, if not already. I may have missed that. Or we may be looking at the Apple announcement. I think it's now been set for September 12th. Wow. So I'll be watching that. As far as with you, with the editing that you do. Oh, yeah. I, I, I may- like to have a little bit more than perhaps what your needs are. But then again, also, I just tend to break my computers, if that makes any sense, because I really push them because in my prior life, I used to be an engineer. Now I'm a lawyer. Now I'm a podcaster. So I just really like to tinker with things and tends to really stress the hardware. So got your camera. Why are you using a, so is this a Sony camera you're using or is it a Sony webcam? No, it's a Sony camera. So I used, I had a older Windows laptop that had a terrible webcam and I, or yeah, a terrible onboard cam. And I was starting to make a lot of content. And so I decided to step up to the ZV-1 because that is probably, it was the sort of the best mirrorless entry level, I don't know, vlogger hardware at the time. Forgive me. I'm not familiar with this device. And the reason why I'm really curious is, so this is a regular point and shoot camera that you're using as a video. Exactly. Yeah. And- why did you not say get a Logitech Brio with a 4K or one yeah. other 4K? Was there some yeah. give and take for that? Yeah, for sure. So the ZV-1's sensors are far, really probably any mirrorless camera, and many of which are better than the ZV-1, are far better sensors than any webcam you'll ever be able to get. They also have a way better lens, right? Almost no webcams have a physical zoom lens. Right. This does. Now okay. the ZV-1 comes with a lens, so mm-hmm. to speak, on it. Whereas most mirrorless cameras you get, you have to buy a lens. 
And so the, the thought there was that my wife was a lot more likely to go for me being able to get the ZV-1 that had the lens than buying a more expensive camera with right. a more expensive lens. Gotcha. So this okay. MacBook Pro's webcam is right, so right. good. Right. It worked. But... I usually use it, but I fit, but since I knew I was coming on your show, I got the ZV-1 dusted off. No, I appreciate that. Let me ask you, how is the ability to connect the camera to the laptop? Because I've heard complaints from other mm -hmm. about how it's tricky, it's difficult, it's not always solid. What did you use to connect the two? You got to get a capture card. So the Sony ZV-1 does have a driver that you can download to your laptop or computer, and then you can run the ZV-1 through that driver. But I've done some testing with the driver versus the capture card. And the quality is much higher with the capture card. Now, for the benefit of the listener, what is a capture card? I think I can show it without too much distress to the... Well, of course, the listeners won't be able to see this. They can listen right. to it, of course, but they can't see this. And it's a device to basically convert what's coming in from your camera into your computer. Right. And I believe we'll... some people use them for streaming gaming. Okay. And I think that it has some level of recording capacity. Okay. But I've only used it just as a straight Webcam. external hardware right, right. driver, I guess, almost right. is what it is. Excellent. I'll be sure to have that in the show notes as well for everyone. Okay. And I know you mentioned you had a Rode mic. Yeah, I've got the Rode mic going through a pad audio connect to mixer. Excellent. Excellent. So you're probably one step ahead of me when it comes to recording and podcasting because I have a sure, let's see, MV, remember correctly, an MV on the side. It's a sure MV seven, I think, which is pretty good. It just doesn't have the mixing capabilities. I don't have a mixer like you do. I think it actually may have mixing capabilities, but it doesn't have, I don't own a mixer because I'm just not quite there yet. As advanced as you are, sir. Well, really, actually, I got this mic as a good deal. And I didn't think about the fact that its output was the standard mic jack. Okay. So I had to get the mixer <laughs> to use it. Oops. Okay. Okay. That happens. Mine, I think actually has, now I'm thinking about it, has actually both options. I can use a USB, which yeah. is what I'm doing right now, or I can plug in a mixer cable and run it through a mixer. And I, that may be the next step. I yeah. recently got this mic several months ago, and I will notice that I have a large improvement from the Blue hmm. Yeti mic that I was using. Got it. And that was a yeah, pretty good I mic. have a different one. I think it's a, I have a Blue Yeti that I used to use that we now use in our office that we call the courtroom because so many, it's all Zoom trials. So right, right. we have a room in our office where the clients can go to trial cool. and we use it in there. Excellent. Are there any other tech devices, hardware, software you've got there in the office that you'd like to share with the audience? No, I'm trying to think. I use my, I do, I'm a big TikToker. But okay. I, just use my, I just use my iPhone for that. And so actually I should ask, well, what kind of iPhone do you have? The one I had to, so I'll confess this because I think it's maybe it'll make other people feel better. I had TikTok on my regular iPhone, which is just a 12 mini. Right, right. And I love the mini just because it fits in my pocket. And I also find that a lot of the iPhone specs are so good on the mm -hmm. base models that even yep. though the pro models are so good, like I don't really think that there's that many uses for me. And the Fair third enough. camera for distance isn't really just a, too much of a part of my lifestyle. Fair so enough. I don't really need that third camera for anything that I, but for the making TikToks, I got a different phone 
because I needed to get the TikTok app off my primary phone because I was getting right. too addicted to it. And so I run just a standard iPhone 14. Okay. It was mm -hmm. funny. I was listening to Mac Power users actually earlier this morning and Guest was talking about how he uses a Pixel phone for all of his fun stuff and his work stuff. He just uses an iPhone. And on the iPhone, there are no games. There are There's no fun stuff. There's no play apps or whatever apps, including yeah. social media. And so it's like, he doesn't really want to touch his iPhone for fun, which is his work iPhone. And then of course, mm -hmm. similar to you, he's got all the fun stuff. I'm, I'm almost uh, in reverse. <laughs> yeah. What are the top three ways you use artificial intelligence to prove the lives of your clients? The number one way is I have a fleet of chatbots that talk to people who want to talk to my law firm, either so that they can become our clients, or maybe they just have a question about their case and they want us to answer that question. In fact, the second category of the people who want free, high quality legal information certainly dramatically outpaces those who want to hire our law firm. So, and I've had chatbots talking to clients of this law firm for seven years. So we've had a lot wow. of different chatbot models through the years. Mm -hmm. Okay. And are you afraid that people chatting with your chatbot may somehow infer some quote unquote legal advice that they may come back to you and say, hey, I, I tried what your chatbot said and I got not what I wanted? Yeah. Well, I think maybe the two things that you listed, are, I'll pull them apart a little bit. Please. Yeah, the second Please. of they didn't get what they wanted, some percentage of what the chatbot does with them almost always includes them not getting what they wanted because what they really want is a free whenever they want conversation with me right. personally. Right. right, right. And what they're getting is a chatbot, which while a lot better now than it once was, mm -hmm. still not even anywhere near what you and I as human attorneys are able to do for our clients. In Understood. terms of the attorney-client relationship, I have an attorney who uses my chatbots who's in Nevada, and there they have this rule that says, if you give out advice to people on social media, you're creating an attorney-client relationship. Right. Maryland does not have that rule. That's not the way that the Maryland ethics advisory opinions have interpreted this. And moreover, my bots identify themselves as chatbots. So people don't think they're dealing with a Maryland lawyer. They know they're dealing with a chatbot. And so I think they, for me personally and my law firm, I would be comfortable defending a lawsuit for that because I don't think that a person that talks to a chatbot has a reasonable expectation of legal advice that they should act upon. Any more than someone has a reasonable expectation of legal advice after reading a blog, for instance, on my law firm's website. Secondarily, the bots themselves use language that introduces some doubt into their ants, mm -hmm. like you likely qualify for this status or you need to talk to an attorney to confirm right, right. that. Well, it's interesting. My my father, he has his JD. He's not a practicing attorney and he used to be a teacher at a community college and was teaching paralegals. He had a complaint filed against him because the student said, had I listened to what you told me in class, I wouldn't have won my lawsuit or something to that degree. 
<laughs> it's like, I'm just curious to see if that's come out of the word works because unfortunately we're in a litigious society and I would hate for something like that to happen because people are people, unfortunately, sometimes. Yeah. The bots have had over 150,000 conversations mm -hmm. with people about their cases and we have not had that complaint. I've always been thinking about this because I, you put your thing, it's like your first question out of the gate, we're on it. One of the most critical parts of it. And the other thing is until now, none of the chat bots have ever been capable. Well, cap we've never released a bot that had natural language generation okay. until now. And so in the past, everything the bot has said has been an answer that I've written which gives me an extreme amount of control around what the range of advice that the bot might give is. Okay. And you said natural language. You've moved from one type to another. Can you tell us what the old type was and what's different by using the new type, if you will? Yeah, I'd love to. So old school AI, some people know as expert systems, the if-then logic, that's legal tech all the way from maybe the 80s when people started to try to attack expert systems, the 90s, the 2000s, and even let's just go ahead and add the 2010s and teens. All right. That whole time we've been in expert systems and my initial bots were expert systems as well. Typically when you look at an expert system, what you're gonna see are buttons because the bot needs you to select one thing or another right. as you right, move right. down the, ch the chain. What I noticed was that people that were talking to my bots hated the buttons. They hated the questions. And the more questions that we put, All right. the more people did not finish the conversation and they left. What do people want? Well, they want to come in and spit out right. the whole story, all of their questions and one big narrative. Ow, take it, right. understand it understand the system that they're talking about and then respond to it with coherent emotional recognition, fact recognition, legal recognition, logic, all in one and like get into a conversation like you and I do with our clients. Right, right. What and are the three things we need? Natural language processing, NLP, okay. natural language understanding, NLU, and potentially natural language generation, NLG, which is the thing that everyone's going crazy about right now is NLG. Is that what chat GPT is? I would say that chat GPT is really is NLP and NLG okay. because it understands what we tell it quite well. And then it spits something out quite well. The NLU piece of ChatGPT, we are inferring, but we don't actually know if ChatGPT is having some sort of understanding. And when you ask it about its logic, its answers about its logic are very clearly not true. Forgive me as I'm absorbing all this. So let me pull back to your first answer. Not that you would have an exact number or science on this, but are you finding a certain percentage of potential clients like, hey, I'm talking to a bot. I want to talk to a person. This guy's not even let me talk to his receptionist. So, no, I love that. I love that question. I think- Now, forgive me for asking the hard, pushy questions. No, I love your questions. I okay. think they're great. No, they're great. So, yeah, very few law firms staff the phone- or chat after hours and on the weekends. Very many immigrants want to talk to their legal providers after they get out of work at 1.30 right. or 2 a.m. 
on the weekend when they have a day off and we have this sort of big gap between staffing and desire from customers to talk mm-hmm. to the firm. Another thing that happens a lot if you're very active on social media is that say I have a video that goes viral on TikTok and suddenly 1,000 people want to talk to me in a four-hour stretch. Right. I have a medium-sized law firm, but I don't have anywhere near the capacity to handle 1,000 inquiries in three or four hours. And so when those two areas make it where the bot maybe shouldn't be compared to a human, it should be compared to nothing. Right. Okay. Excellent. So that's- But they are frustrated. You're right. They are. They don't want to talk to a bot. They want to talk to a lawyer. And- are, can you, I don't know if you have the the meta tags or the ability through your chat bot to determine how many people are being quote unquote frustrated and leaving out of like five out of a hundred. I'm assuming the, the number is low or the number that you still get is so high that it's obviously the cost benefit analysis. I'm sure some people are looking at. So yeah, I think, so like, do you know how many people your website converts into a form fill, for instance, that would be like a number. I think those are the kind of numbers that I think chatbots should be compared to. Okay. Maybe rather than humans. But then again, with humans, I think a lot of people use call centers. Right. And call centers can be pretty frustrating too. They don't know anything about your law firm in a lot of cases. They don't know anything about you. They don't know anything about your case type. So- which human are we comparing that chatbot to? Because sometimes I would say like my chatbots, they do know, they know, for instance, all the video content that I've ever created. And if okay. I've made a video that answers this person's question, they can serve it to them. So in that way, they're actually providing a whole lot more information than a call center would be able to do. Fair enough. And I, I use a quote unquote virtual receptionist at smith.ai. And they, like your chat bot, they know what I tell them in the sense of these, this is the area of my practice. This is the type of cases I take. These are the certain like set criteria that a potential caller has to make, which I would assume would also be the same for in your chat bot. That being said, of course, your chat bot can handle a lot more. And at the same time, ideally screen the appropriate potential clients down to where it's like, this is something where I can help you, or this is something that I can't help you. And of course, in in either situation, if it really needs a follow-up phone call, I'm presuming you have a method of like, that's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that, but let us get back to you. Totally. So in immigration law, the paid consult, the prepaid consult is usually the entryway into my law firm. And it's rare that my bots can convince someone to pay them for a consultation without a human joining the conversation okay. in one way or another. Okay. So how do you make that connection then? But So the bots screen them through to a point. And before you get to the paid consultation portion, you have to have that human interaction. That being said, how is that done at your end? Most often the bot will email the staff and say, Michael wants to talk to you about this case description. Here's his phone number. Please give him a call. Okay. And I assume the bot tells them that either during the next business hours or as soon as reasonably possible, somebody will contact you. It does. We also offer the clients the ability to schedule 
the five or 10 minute okay. call Roger. when it's convenient for them so that my staff and yep. them don't have the misconnections. Excellent. Excellent. You're thinking one step out of me. And that is one of the most favorite things that I love to do is when I get a potential client and usually goes through the virtual receptionist and they will offer them options for scheduled appointments. I think your firm is probably a little bit bigger than mine. And I, I mean that with all due respect, because I'm usually the one making the phone calls, not the staff per se. And I'm the one that does the screening since I'm a solo. So I like to make sure I want to really screen that person quite well if I'm going to take them on as a client. You're but, going to have to talk to them. <laughs> yes, I'm going to have to talk to them. And the best trick I learned was to just block schedule them on two different days. Oh. In other words, my potential client interviews are only done between 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Brilliant. I love and, it. And the other time I can plan whether it's perhaps doing a podcast recording like we're doing right now or doing some substantive work or other work or et cetera. I don't have to worry about, oh crap, I got a 15 minute or 30 minute phone call here. The worst part, of course, is when they don't show up. It happens. And, but it used to be, it was too much of an aggravation throughout the day. We had this one phone call, they don't show up because sometimes life happens or they forgot or they didn't bother to quote unquote cancel the appointment, which all that happens. It's part of doing business, but at least when you have it one after the other, it's not that big of a deal. One misses, you'll do a little work until the next one. Totally. No, I love that blocking. I think that's great. And also allows you as a solo to have your deep work time. Right. You know, that's yep. amazing. Yep. And that's exactly what I do. And no offense, when we quote unquote scheduled our recording session, I had block days and times for recording versus times where I'm doing work and times where I'm doing that and whatever. And of course, I don't know if you noticed, but I will record, I think sometime between the hour of 12 and 9 p.m., seemed really flexible to me. Yeah, because this is me having fun. If I get to take a break in the middle of the day and do a recording session for an hour, then, you know, I'm set. That's made my day. <laughs> and actually, I'm really lucky this week because I've got three recording sessions. But anyway, I'm rambling. So, but with all due respect, you've only given one answer to the question <laughs> about improving lives for your clients. And I'll try not to go off on other tangents for your last yeah. two answers. So AI can also aid client intakes. In that case, right now, we're still mm -hmm. using a version of old school AI. So with conditional questionnaires, right. uh, if you answer this question in this way, then it's going to ask you a couple more questions versus closing right. down sets of questions. I think that people in this recent wave of AI hype that's all around generative AI are acting as if all the AI that came before it is either unimportant or they didn't even know that it happened. But I still think that many of the forms of old school AI can be really helpful. And I think that as lawyers, our decision-making is often based on these yes. decision tree patterns. Yeah, And that's helpful to us because it gives us a clear path to what actions we can and cannot take for our clients. So I've programmed in both basic and Fortran. Wow. So I, I know Great. about those decision trees. I'm probably a little bit older than I appear. So that's lucky. <laughs> yeah, but it, yeah, I've been using computers since 1980. And mm. I've once I was able to put a keyboard to a word processor, that made my life so much easier. The best class I took was type. Remember, oh, like on the old. I machines. heard you say that on your on a different yeah. on a podcast I was yeah. listening. I, I tell you, I can get so much more work done than, versus me like handwriting out a draft. All right, so that's two. Need a third. Here's the third. In order for our team to fully utilize AI, it's really forced all of us to be more rigorous in our thinking and our documentation and the way mm -hmm. that we've set all our systems up. 
Maybe it's a little bit of a cheat answer here, but AI has forced us to be better and more thorough in order to use it. Right. And so that's my third answer. No, no, that makes sense. Because if you're not doing the process correctly, you're not going to help your client. You know, it's all about dotting I's and crossing T's. I mean, not that we're not human, not that we don't make mistakes, but if we can carve the tool in such a way that it helps us help our clients, all the better. Pardon the interruption. I hope you're enjoying the techsavvylayer.page podcast as much as I enjoy making them. Consider buying us a cup of coffee or two to help defray some of the production costs. Well, let's move on to question number two. And actually, your second answer hinted at certain concerns as it's raised with my question. What are the top three security measures you've taken to ensure the privacy of your client's data when using AI? Number one is we are running our own models, our own machine learning models with our own data. Okay. And so... Nothing leaves, they're not our servers, right? I am running cloud servers. I, I do, a, we have a mix of AWS and Heroku, but. Okay. So there, it is other people's metal technically, but gotcha. it's very secure metal. It's that the cluster. No, wait, wait, I'm going to pause you for a second. I need to pause you for a second. So when you say metal, what do you mean by that? When we are running a cluster on an AWS data center on their, on AWS's GPUs, that's what I mean by their metal, their CPUs and GPUs. Okay. And then you said cluster. Yeah. So one of the brilliant things about cloud computing, I think we talked earlier about the idea that 1000 people might want to talk to my law firm in three hours. Right. One might also want to talk to my law firm. And so we don't want to run the max amount of hardware at all times. We want to be able to rapidly scale up and down the usage that we have in response to the amount of conversations that we're having at the same time. There's a lot of concerns with chatbots around this idea of state, meaning that the bot needs to remember all the things that you've told it. And so each bot conversation needs to be its own state machine. Fair enough. And so we might need a lot or we might need a few. And then we also have to make a lot of decisions around, for instance, like how long do you hold state? Is it reasonable to think that you're going to come back after five minutes, five hours, five days? Right. How do we bring these things in and out of those of compute? And then when you're training a machine learning model, you might use a lot more compute than you do while whilst running it. And so your cluster, if you will, is then the size of the computing space that you're taking up. Precisely. And I think the one of the analogies I like to use when it comes to talking about a computer itself is that the size of your RAM can tell you how big of a desk you can have. If you have a lot more RAM, you can have a huge desk and run a whole bunch of operations, or you can have just one big operation moving really quickly. So it sounds like a cluster is like the size of your desk, the size of your desk space that you're going to be working on. And it either will expand or contract depending on the time and the need. If I understand with what you're sharing with us. Yeah. The other thing is I am not an engineer. Okay. So I certainly am not the person that is writing the code. Right, right. Especially when we're talking about the sort of the code in the way that it's being deployed to call upon resource Mm -hmm. to maintain state. Right. Even the data scientists that we've worked with is not the one doing that. And if I'm asked, who is doing that? I'm assuming it's a third-party company? Well, so yeah, we've worked with different companies. Okay. But yeah, we're on our third company right now that we've worked with. How did that evolution come to be? Yeah, so the first one... If you don't want to share names, that's fine. Okay. Well, I'm not so... I guess I'm on my 
I'm on my fourth company. Actually, the first person I found, I was trying to figure out how to more efficiently compress my chatbot flows. That's what they were called at that time, the decision trees with a bilingual architecture because I was having conversations in Spanish and English. Mm -hmm. And I found a blog post written on this subject by an engineer and I emailed him. And we had a really great phone call. And then he was like, I would be willing to work on this project with you part-time for for some hourly rate. Right. And we built a bot together. Cool. So that was the first one. But then he actually ended up getting a full-time job. It couldn't no longer, the project was growing and he was having less. Right. Yeah. Then I started working with a company in Spain who was doing a lot with natural language processing in Spanish because a lot of the data science at that time was only in English in the United States. Okay. And so I started working with a Spanish company and I've spent a lot of time with them. They were called the Neon Project. Then they pivoted to being called Wheelize. And then they were ultimately purchased by a big Spanish dev shop called Azertis. Another company I've worked with was called Miner and Cash when I met them. And then they were acquired by Atos Zdata. It's a very huge company. That one, Miner and Cash, the way I got that was I went to a meetup and there was a chance for everyone to like give their pitch for their project. And I said, I know there's a lot of data scientists here that are trying to break in. This is my project. Really cool. Works with immigrants. If any of you want to work on it, I don't have any money, but I will do whatever I can to help you otherwise. And one of them came up to me and said, why don't you come meet the rest of our team? And I did. And then they offered me a really good deal. And so that's how I found them. And now the fourth, I noticed a competitor colleague of mine got a chatbot on his Facebook page. And I wrote him and said, hey, I've been trying to build you a chatbot for over a year. And then you just went out and got a different chatbot. What's the deal? And he's my friend as well. Right, right, right. And he said... Oh, I helped a friend of mine with something. And so he gave me a free chat bot on my webpage to, or on my Facebook page to pay me back. I said, what? Who is this guy? So he gave me that guy's number and I called him and we struck up just a really great friendship in large part, just because especially at that time, but to some extent now, there's just not so many people that are that interested in chatbots. Oh, I'm surprised. Yeah. So me and him became friends and we've talked for years. And now when the time came for me to change from the Spanish vendor, he is now the one that's in charge of my chatbots. And his company is called Wizards. Okay. And they do a lot of really cool stuff with AI and video games as well. Oh, okay. So I assume though that they do both business and entertainment chat. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. So we're talking about the three security measures and you mentioned that it's hosted on secure platforms like AWS, which of course is what Amazon uses or it's Amazon service, I should say. What other steps have you taken to ensure your client's information is kept confidential? So we definitely don't give any personal identification information to chat GPT, but we also obscure when we're talking to chat GPT, other details. So like we don't say client X from Buenos Argentina, born on X date. We make it a lot more vague because it's just been up to now quite unclear how safe information being passed to OpenAI is. And we do use ChatGPT heavily, all of us at the firm or a lot of us, but we all avoid specifics and ultra specifics, let's call it. And and I do the same. And sometimes when I just, I haven't used it greatly in the sense of to the capacity I could, but when it comes to like, if I need a 
a paragraph rewritten or a sentence or from trying to come up with some ideas. That's it's been fantastic. But I also want to be sure we're clear for the listener that we've moved on from your internal AI to more of an external AI for two different uses, which is fine, of course. And I agree with you. You would be, pardon me, an idiot. If you're putting out your clients' social security names, data births, stuff like that, there's just simply no reason to put that in a public chat GPT or even some of the paid services. Now, it's funny, this week, a blog post should be out about how I'm talking about the chief judge in North Carolina, I believe it's North Carolina, put a ban on the use of third-party docket services. Apparently, an attorney filed something that should have been not under seal and and I think the attorney was also using one of these third-party docket assistant companies, if you will, where they like automatically get pleading and they send it out to whoever is supposed to get a copy and do some other things with it too. And because of the errant attorney, the third-party company did what it did. And the judge got upset because of the third-party company, which really makes no sense in my mind, because really it's the errant attorney who made the mistake. Because even if he or she put it on there, didn't have the third-party company, it's still out in the ether. Pacer is going to make it public. So I'm not really sure what the judge is thinking. And my concern is that perhaps he, along with others, still don't have a basic understanding of how some technology works. Well said. And I I know, I think you practice in the VA, right? Yes, sir. So in Maryland, we have a- Oh, wait, VA, VA, Veterans Affairs. Veterans Affairs, right? Not Virginia. I'm not a state practitioner. Just make sure that's clear. Fair. So in Maryland state, we have our own e filing system. And this thing looks like a website from the 1990s. It's mind boggling how bad it is, Mm. how much money they spent on it. And when it came out compared to what, and the reason I bring that up is a lot of attorneys are using these third-party systems in part to just try to bring their experience right into this millennium, not to mention decade. And so in a way it's like, and there's no public API. So I feel like if the courts don't offer the state-of-the-art experience technologically and with user interfaces, of course, these third-party services are going to do great. I won't mention the court name, although I have blogged about this issue. I am a member of a court that still has JavaScript in order to file documents. Wow. And I've commented not only in the blog, but to the court several times. It's like you're isolating, you're using, in my opinion, a not secure means of doing these filings. But on top of that, I'm a Mac person and their system never played nice on a Mac. Mm -hmm. So you're telling that Mac attorneys have to get a Windows device in order to do these filings. I moved away from a Windows, no offense to the Windows users who are listening here today. I moved away from Windows to a Mac because I wanted my system to work and not have to worry about logging on to a slightly older Windows machine and praying that it works. Although I've been doing some recent filings in the court and I don't know what's going on. I'm a little freaked out because it's actually working. (laughs) So I'm like, I'm thrilled. But anyway, I digress. So I think, so for you, I'm trying to recalculate my mind. I think we got two. That's two. The third, here's the third. No, you did give me the third, but I'll let you give me a fourth. How's that? Fair. Yeah. Don't give AI unfettered access to your data. So we have the capacity at my law firm, the way that we've got our data stored in the different systems to point different AI systems at 
any part of our stack that we want with the amount of time and depth that we can, let's say, afford really would probably be the only real barrier to us doing data science anywhere we want. But we don't just open the door and just have these APIs hooked up to have the whole stack and just let it go. We do it in a way that's intentional, uh, responsible, and thoughtful because like anything else, it's a tool that has a lot of risks. And so we first think about what is the job that we're trying to do here rather than just let's hook up the AI and see what it can do. So, I, And no one else should do that either, especially third-party systems. Which is something that what I was mentioning before, and forgive me, I don't remember the problem name of what they do, but the docket assistant companies, if you will, they don't have, I don't believe they have that kind of access to their attorney's office files. They're just passing through a docket filing right. to whomever. And I think it was funny, the rule that the judge had cited, the local rule was something about you can only have employees or yourself use your CM ECF login credentials. Well, the thing is, that makes no sense here because the third party companies are contractors contractors whom I hired to right. assist. So how does this rule prevent? But anyway, but well, let's leave off with a fun question. Question number three. I think they've all been fun. Oh, well, I. but this one's going to be more fun because it lets you to put on your imagination cap. Anticipating the future, what are your top three predictions for the most effective ways AI will be employed in managing a lawyer's practice? Right. I think the first thing that I listed here in my answer to you is something we've already talked about heavily, but it's sales, calendaring, and intake and client communications. Everybody wants an instant answer to their question. And that, right. that I'm everybody too. Everybody wants that. An AI, a well-trained, intelligent AI, which are, you know, in some firms already here and others just right over the hill here. We're coming right up on it. And Chad GPT passed the bar exam this year. Those functions are, they're expensive in a law firm and expensive in terms of staff because we have to put highly trained people on them and they have to be fully present. You can't have a conversation with a customer and draft a brief at the same time. You just can't. Right. And so these are things that chatbots and AI can do and we'll be able to continue to get better at. And by giving that over to them, our customers are going to be happier because they're going to get instant answers to their questions and inquiries. And those answers will often be free. So you know something, here's a interesting, here's a hypothetical I'm developing my mind that I'll do respect. I'm not necessarily looking for an answer, but just think about this for a second. Okay. So we just had a chatbot past the bar, right? Okay. Now, back in college, back in the early 90s, we had to do this really complicated calculation. It had like 30 different variables, AX plus CZ plus one half of the quarter, whatever. And then what you had to find was to the power of, you had to find that number. And it was just, a, it was basically handwriting back and forth to narrow down the number. And that would take like 30 minutes of your test time. I had back then, it was an HP graphing calculator and those things were like $300. And of course, now you can get like something from TI for like 70 bucks. And I knew how to program it accordingly. And I asked the professor, hey, can I use this? And I explained to him exactly what I was doing and why I was doing it. And he said to me, if you're smart enough, program it, do that. 
I got no problem with that. So can we, as attorneys or say law students, graduating law students, if we know how to program the chat bot correctly, can we have the chat bot take the bar exam for us? Food for thought. Food this is for interesting. Thought. I think you and I have both been lawyers for a while. So I think that the answer is that the bar would never accept it. But Please, it took him forever to allow I, us to use frankly, computers. I was, kind of surprised. I was surprised in your anecdote that your professor was so forward looking, open minded. He was actually an older professor. hes I don't believe he's with us anymore. He was a very good professor. I liked him a lot. And what can I tell you? So let's move on to your other two answers. Number two is this. For lawyers, that bill by the hour, which I'm mm -hmm. not one of at all my cases, well, 95, 99% of my cases are flat fee. But for those that bill by the hour, I'd like to introduce you to the flat fee. <laughs> because the problem is the following. AI naturally drops the amount of time that it's going to take us to do these tasks. It just right. does. Right. I, and we've talked about it today, but and many others have more, all kinds of different ways, be it comprehension, summary, intake, drafting, the, all these things combined to potentially cut down the amount of work we spend on cases to 10 to 20% of what it is now. So if our profits and gains come from doing things slowly and inefficiently, which is what the hourly rate rewards, this thing is going to kill businesses that continue to use the hourly rate. But when you have a flat fee and you're able to do things faster and more mm -hmm. efficiently, you and your client can high five and you don't lose money. But the concern I have, and this was in a recent editorial I wrote, are the bars. The bars, not all the bars, look favorably on flat fees. I didn't know that. Yes, there are. Or I know with all due respect, I don't know about wherever you're licensed. Maryland. And it's hard to balance that out. I think the bars need to catch up on a lot of this technology. I think the bars need to catch up on a lot of things. I would encourage you to take a look at, I would encourage my audience to take a look at if they're interested in these topics, Carolyn Elephant's blog, myshingle.com, where I know she talks about the concerns of flat fees and state bars and some other issues along those lines. But that would be my biggest concern, I think. So number three. I'll just, one more thing on flat fees. Please, My sorry. clients are people of limited means for the most part. And when you tell them a high hourly rate, right. they get really scared. Whereas mm -hmm. a flat fee, they are they get it. They yes. can, can get there. They can figure that out. But to them, an hourly rate feels like, well, how do I know what this guy's going to do with his right. $350 an hour? So Right. But like I said, that can be still, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. But like I said, some bars are not favorable on that. Yeah. Final one I put was fun is business coach. Okay. I have, I love business coaches. I have a human business coach. Okay. But a lot of lawyers that I talk to don't have anyone at all. And ChatGPT has pretty great advice, be it for HR, be it for marketing, be it for business. It's a very clear thinker. When you're asking it questions, it forces you to think clearly about what your problem is when you're explaining it. And so I think that lawyers should lean into this, these tools, ability to help them on many of the things that we aren't trained on as lawyers. Okay. I will have to consider that. Thankfully, I don't have too many HR problems. I have a small staff, if you will, but I get to be pretty blunt, if you will. I'm not rude, but 
blunt. Apparently, somebody was sharing with me that was some of the comments that people had made working with me in the past is that it's like, he's, he tends to be blunt, doesn't hold back. I'm like, was I being mean or rude? They're like, oh no, just like, it's shockingly refreshing. But anyway, I, forgive me, I digress. Jared, there I want to- There was one more thing I did want, I wanted to say just because I think that would be interesting to you, but it's not necessarily lawyering. There's a trend of AI on the edge that mm -hmm. I believe is growing more and more. I use an app called Mac Whisper that okay. does transcription on my GPUs in my MacBook. And I think we're going to see more and more of these apps that are able to be small enough to run on our devices. Right, right. Not passing them into the clouds. And I think that's going to be a big trend in AI. I think that would be fantastic. I'm just curious to know how big, and forgive me, what I was, the phrase I was looking for earlier when we were talking was resources. I've got to wonder how much resources that's going to take from our computer, not just processing power, but storage. And I have, when I got my current studio, I got a two terabyte hard drive, thinking that should be fine for three or four years until I get my next Mac studio. But I've used 75% of that already. I, and I was surprised. I was thinking, does that mean I need to get like a four terabyte next time or even an eight terabyte next time? So it's just, th that's going to be something more like, can you put it on a thumb drive, I think, and then attach it to your computer when you need it or mm -hmm. have it on a separate drive attached to your computer? Huh, I wonder. I think we've both given some food for thought on a lot of things. And Jared, I want to thank you for being here today. Please tell us, where can people find you? LinkedIn, best place. I love LinkedIn. I'm all over it. I'm going to put it, this podcast all over LinkedIn when we get it once, once it gets published. You're very uh, kind. Thank you. TikTok, jascot.abogado. I'm very active on TikTok. Yeah, those are the two best places. And if you want to talk to me just on LinkedIn, I'm always happy to take people's DMs and connection requests. Excellent. And I, again, I want to thank you for being here and you have a great day. I really appreciate it. I love this podcast. and It was a great pleasure to be a guest. Thanks, Jared. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the TechSavvyLawyer.page podcast. Our next episode will be posted in about two weeks. If you have any ideas about a future episode, please contact me at michaeldj at the TechSavvyLawyer.page. Have a great day and happy luring.